Tonight we're going to talk about miracles. Fancy, frivolous, and beyond. I was thinking about the verse John 10, 10. And y'all all know the verse. It says the enemy, the thief, comes to. Steal. S-K-D. <laughs> I get in trouble with those, don't I? Steal, kill, and destroy. Okay. But he said that I've come to have life. Now, if he had stopped there just at life, it leaves one impression in my mind because you can literally have life and it can just be existence. It can just be barely making it. It can be the fact that we're grateful we're breathing. You know, some of you get up and I say, what are you thankful for? You sound like a, you know, a little kid, like, I'm thankful I'm breathing. You know, so life is just existence. Well, I think of that and I think of tuna fish sandwiches. And all my life, you didn't ask what lunch was, it was tuna fish sandwiches. But my mind was going over, where am I going to cook for supper? Because I think the biggest problem I was thinking, that, you know, the meat in the market doesn't inspire me. I look at that hunk of meat and I think, what do I do with that? You know, or it's frozen and you have to create, you know, something out of your freezer. And you're trying to feel inspired. Well, you know, when I read this verse here and I see that we have life, I always think life is tuna fish sandwiches. There's nothing wrong with tuna fish sandwiches. They're good. I mean, I I lived on them. It made me grow up strong. It made me have a good life. My brother played football on tuna fish sandwiches. And it was a great life. I never knew it could be any better. But when God takes that verse and he goes further and he goes, I've given you life and life more abundantly. He's gone crazy with that verse. He's taken life to a new level. He's turned the grace up. he's, He's flipped the switch. And when I think of life and life more abundantly, I can't think of anything but Thanksgiving dinner. Man, you think, you know, when Mama says, what kind of pies do you want? And you say, I want a chocolate, and I want an apple pie, and I want a pecan pie, and I want a chest pie, and I want a buttermilk pie. What kind of meat do you want? I want turkey, and I want ham, and I want some enchiladas, and I want some... (laughs) You just start dreaming of what you want. You Remember those hot rolls that they're so hot, they actually are like cotton candy, they melt in your mouth. You think of Thanksgiving, and it's all you can eat. Last night, we were eating so much, so hard, so fast. Yes, it was fast day. That my brother looks over and he says, where's some gravy to go with this dressing? I mean, we, what more could you think of you needed for the meal? I couldn't believe Bill could think of one more thing that we could want. These plates were heaping over. I mean, even leftovers from this is good. So I was thinking, to me, when God told you that he has provided life for you, and then he's told you, but life more abundantly, I want you to take in your mind from tuna fish sandwiches up to Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, I want you to see the spread that he's telling you when he goes into the area of abundant life. And what a contrast between steal, kill, and destroy and life and life more abundantly. That's why I think the decision to live for the Lord is not really a hard decision. (laughs) I'm I'm really shocked that people are stumbling over that and that the odds are that most people aren't going to make it because life and life more abundantly, what a good, gracious God do we serve. You know, we think of that, and we think of feast. You know, Israel was defined by the feast they had. Some of you have studied the feast of Israel. And I mean, what are feasts? They're like these crazy eating times when you rejoice. It's celebrations. You enjoy your Lord. You enjoy God. How about if your Bible had read, and these were the fast of Israel. These were the fast. You know, take one letter off a feast, take the E out, and it's fast. And so there was eight great fasts of Israel. Isn't it funny? It's a great feast of Israel. 
you know, sometimes when they got in trouble, they did have a a community fast. You know, everybody was like on their knees praying because everybody's going to be killed. But it's funny that what distinguishes Israel is feasting. That God literally made this time of just feasting with everyone, big celebrations. Think of the pilgrims and how good that food must have looked in the wilderness. Can you imagine those plates spread out with all the food on there that they had homegrown out of the garden? You know, vegetables don't taste near as good unless you've grown them yourself. You know, that feeling of everything on here, homegrown. You know, and all the men are looking at you going, I killed that. That was my 10-pointer there. You know, probably back then it was like 15 points on this one. Can you imagine what that looked like? You know, in the autumn of 1621... The 53 surviving pilgrims celebrated their successful harvest, as was the English custom. Now, there were 53 surviving pilgrims. That means they had been starving the year before. That means they had gone through some rough times. Can you imagine what Thanksgiving looked like compared to starvation the year before? If you look at 1621, can you believe it? That's what we're celebrating is something that happened in 1621. During this time, the Indians came up, and among them was their great king, Massasoit, and he brought 90 of his young male braves with him. Now, I think that's funny to think that there were more um, guests than there were hosts. (laughs) There were only 53 pilgrims, but they're going to eat all your food if they bring 90 in there. So the Indians came, and they were enjoying the feast. There were 53 pilgrims. I thought, what would it be like on a Tuesday night where we had more visitors than we did regulars? You know, like if we had 90 guests to 53 regulars. Those are good odds. That 1621 celebration is remembered as the first Thanksgiving in Plymouth. Now, the pilgrims didn't call it Thanksgiving. They just called it their big harvest festival. But they did give thanks to God. And to them, a day of Thanksgiving was purely a religious holiday. That's all it was. They were there to tell God, thank you. Man, in 1623, two years later, the first recorded day of Thanksgiving occurred. So they're a little bit mixed up. Which day do we use, 1621? Or do we use 1623? And that's when they had had a great rain that they had needed. And the timing of the rain was spectacular. And so they said, this is our great day of Thanksgiving. That's what we're going to be celebrating. The day of giving thanks. You know, I was thinking about our country. You don't have to travel that much and going all over the world to know that America is blessed. We have more. You talk about abundance. We can say God has abundance for us, and we can understand it in this country. Some countries can't. You know, if you've ever gone with some of the countries, it's staggering to see the poor of the nations. I mean, the masses of people that have nothing to eat. You see the children. You know, I think of the little family we found year before last where there were five children. I think the oldest was nine. The oldest looked about five. There were five children, and the the dad had left, and the mother had died, and they'd been alone for a month, and they were trying to find food. And I remember our crossliners coming in and filling their house full of food. I remember them finding a pastor and hooking these five children that lived in this little house, hoping no one would find them to take them away because they wanted to stay together. You know, you just see the masses, you see the children, and you say, God, why have you given your blessings to America? What caused you to do what you've done in this country? What caused America to be so blessed? Even on our worst days, even at our worst, we are so much better than anything I've ever seen anywhere in the world. 
the people. Of course, down here in the south, we even see the southerners, that in Texas, the friendliness, the country, the humor, and the fact that we know our God. You look at this and we say, my, we have been blessed. This is Thanksgiving. You know, when we think about Thanksgiving, we don't think about fasting. I don't think one of you has said, uh, I'll take Thursday as my fast day. <laughs> We're fasting for something in the radio. I think our Thursday person, I'm going to have to check them, call them, say, are you sure you're fasting today? Because, you know, Thanksgiving, nobody's thinking about doing without. We all think about ridiculous amounts of food. You know, something, there's fun about a feast. You know, it's a smorgasbord. It's all-you-can-eat buffet. It's all the amount of food that you can possibly stuff into you. Nobody counts calories on this day. Yeah, nobody talks about nutrition. Mama's happy to let you eat all this food. Well, that's the thought behind what we're going to talk about tonight, is that God has a frivolous, he has an indulgent side to him. Yeah. It's a Thanksgiving side. It's a feast side. It's something that you see pictures of in your Bible. Now, some of you are going to say, I don't know if I've ever seen it. Well, it's there, and I don't know if you will see it if you're not looking for it. I don't know if this is something, you know, I've got some people go, miracles, miracles don't happen today. Well, they're not going to see one. <laughs> they're way back there thinking, no miracles going to happen. Y'all, this is so beyond this concept. This is a side, an indulgent, frivolous side of God that's beyond any miracle you can even imagine. And I'm going to show it to you in Scripture. Okay, number one, miracle. It is God's job description to do miracles, and he's quite good at it. That's his department. He specializes in miracles. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's God. God does specialty. You know, my dad preached a sermon once. The sermon stuck out to me. He said it's God's fancy doing miracles. Yeah, it's just that God enjoys this aspect of it. So we're going to look a little bit into the nature of God on this. Okay, the first miracle. Y'all, it is the funniest of all. John 2. You have to have a controlling mother in this to understand it. But in John 2 is Jesus' first miracle. My mother is not. Poor Jesus. He had a controlling mother. <laughs> And what might Jesus have done for his first miracle if his mother hadn't intervened? I mean, you wonder what the mind of God would have had in him. You know, I was thinking about, you know, my first crisis was tuna fish. And you look at Jesus' first miracle here, and you do some comparisons of, wow, this is the first one out of the box. Okay, so Jesus is at a wedding, and his mother says, oh my gosh, it's going to be so embarrassing. They're out of wine. we got to do something. And, and they're panic button. And Jesus goes, oh. He goes, my time hasn't come. And what does Mother Mary do? Yes, son, you're right. I'm obedient to you because you're, oh, no, no. Do whatever he tells you. You remember Mary. And he just, she just ignores what he's just said. Yeah. She doesn't even take the suggestion. She doesn't even take the blatant, hey, we're starting a whole precedence of an opening of miracles coming onto the earth, being released. I mean, Jesus is, has been water baptized. The Holy Spirit has fallen on him. And immediately the miracles start with Mary's help. Out of all the human needs that were in Israel at that time, out of all the desperate cases, out of all the crazy things that were going on, this miracle is laughable. And you know what? I think it shows us a deeper meaning of the frivolousness of God. Even the way that this miracle came about, you're seeing a side to the Lord that very few people 
will get to know. You've got to get up close to see this side. You know, the truth is, number one, this was not his idea. Number two, it still notes that there's an indulgent side to God here. Number three, there's a lesson to be learned in Jesus saves the best for last. What a principle. You know, the world worries, oh, your youth is your best time. But not this verse. This verse preaches the best is saved for last. You know, the older I get, the better I get. The better ministry will be. These are not my best. I'm only growing into, we're moving from glory to glory. Wow, there's a principle set up here that is so opposite than what the world teaches here. That the best was safer last. And they were all confused. They go, this isn't how it's done. It's not supposed to be this way. This is not the social order. This is not how we should do it. And you see Jesus explain this here. In the midst of everything, you see God do something better than what was being done by them. You know, what testifies of it is the host didn't even know Jesus had performed a miracle and was like, what is this? Because Jesus had the ability to do something so different and so much better than anything we could do or imagine. Why are we trading the carnal for what God has for us in the spiritual? Why are we trading the, what the world calls fun for what the Lord has for us? You know, in the midst of everything, God will throw you in some extras. You know, I was thinking on a mission trip, you know, sometimes the pressure is building and then God will do two or three things for me that just puts me over the edge. Two or three people will join the team that I never dreamed we'd have on the team. I'm just going, God, the whole team was worth it just to have them on the team. You're just thinking, I can't believe that literally we picked the craziest country in the world. We all pick it together, and then we go, let's take all 30 of our best friends, and let's go have some fun for two or three weeks. And then everybody says, wow, we really appreciate y'all suffering for the Lord and how hard it is. We're just laughing going, This is the wildest, craziest fun that you've ever imagined. I feel sorry for you and can't come. You know, you just sit there and you just go, I'm sorry that you have to have a job. We don't have a real life. This is the most fun you've ever had in your life. You know, I'm looking at this and God does always this. Like sometimes I'll be going, oh man, that itinerary, it's rough, you know. Four o'clock in the morning, remember how that guy oh, gets you up out of bed. The roosters are off in the Philippines. They start at 3.30. Yeah. I've heard them at 1. <laughs> if you get a bed by the window, there's something wrong with their alarm clocks over there. Peter sinned early in the Philippines. You've got something going on there. But then the Lord will throw some extras into the itinerary. And I go, you don't, don't tell me we get to go here. We're flying into Mindanao. I mean, that's like Bali High, you know, in South Pacific. Yeah. It's calling us, Mindanao. <laughs> yeah, we're sleeping in the tree houses. The Navy SEALs and the Delta Force are guarding us. We don't see them. They see us. Oh, my gosh, what a life. Yeah, we're going to these places, and literally you feel the pull. You're going into places where, where the uh, embassy is saying, every American out, and we're landing as, the, as you go in. Where they look at somebody and they go, hey, they've got FBI on y'all. She's packing heat. And, you know, they change your reservations. You're like living the movies. While people are watching the news, we're making news. <laughs> Y'all, it's like craziness. And you can't believe God is doing this in your life. Y'all, when I feel the hardest pressure is when I start feeling God juice it. 
You know, y'all have the craziest miracles. If you're not seeing a miracle a day, I'm really disappointed. You're not pulling on God. I mean, you'll lead your first person to Christ. You'll see a miracle before your eyes. I mean, it is crazy way to live. Yeah, I was talking to AJ's mother. I think we ate out Sunday. And she said she got under this pressure. She got under back-breaking pressure. And I go, I know. I know what it feels like. <laughs> I know when the, the size of the crowd. And she said it was at that moment God did the most frivolous thing for me. And I thought, is that not? I mean, you have to be a ministry to understand that. Well, everybody else is going, I can't believe God did that for you. I'm going, I know why. Because you feel the pressure of the crunch. And it's the mental crunch. And God has amazing ways to get you to laugh, to make it work. It's the frivolous side of God. In the midst of everything, he throws in the extra. You know, it's very frivolous, even if it wasn't his ideal to begin with. <laughs> I don't know how to do that theology, but it's great. Okay, Matthew 16, 9 through 10. The summary of this verse is, it's the miracle of where Jesus took a lunch and he made everybody lunch. And in uh, Matthew 16, 9 through 10, you like that one because it put the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 together. And it tells about them in the same sentence. But look at the emphasis is of this verse. It's the best verse for this, any of you preaching. It says, how many baskets did you take up? The emphasis was not on the miracle. It was on the overflow. Jesus could have just multiplied the bread. He could have just fed the 5,000. But he made sure with each miracle that he did basketfuls of leftovers. That's why God's into leftovers. Right here. (laughs) That prison. That God's into this. He didn't waste them. He had them pick up the scraps, and it filled seven baskets. It filled 12 baskets. You look in this, and you know what? It's really not true that they fed 5,000. Really, the, the Bible writer, he got lazy. I hate to say that. But look in that. It says, verse 10, there were about 5,000 men. Not counting women and children. So the truth is, how many did Jesus feed? Wow, you double it right there, each out of a wife, 10,000. If they have a wife, then they've got how many children do they have in these foreign countries? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I mean, you're looking at easily 15,000 people he fed. I mean, really, they just got tired of counting, so they just counted the big guys, the ones that were taking a lot in the line. <laughs> yeah, I just like seeing this, the frivolous side of God, the leftover bread. The fact they only counted the big eaters. Wow. Look in Matthew 14, 22 through 33. You know, people are preaching all kinds of forms of um, Bible theology, but Christianity without miracles is just a philosophy. Yeah. Look in Matthew 14, 22 through 33. This is in verse 25. Jesus walks alone on water. He's all by himself. This is when he did a miracle all by himself. Mark says Jesus was intending to pass them by. Picture it. The disciples are exhausted. It says the wind is blowing, and they're rowing against the wind, and they've been rowing for hours against the wind, and they're probably going nowhere as they're rowing. And suddenly, here comes Jesus making good time and going to pass them by. I've never really thought about this before, but he must have been doing speed walking on this water. 
I mean, the waves must not have bothered him. But he's intending to get past them, so he's going after it. What's that word for these speed walkers? You know, I see some of y'all at 8 o'clock in the morning. Power walkers, thank you. I try to hit some of y'all with my car. But anyway, <laughs> you see Jesus, and he's walking past them. And look at them, they start screaming out, it's a ghost. You know, and they say this is a lack of faith. I get so tickled. I mean, we must be really in a lack of lack of faith. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we yeah, it's a lack of faith here. The frivolous side to walking on water. I mean, if this was the strongest point, was like, what is the purpose of walking on water? Does that do any good? I mean, what need does that mean? What act of compassion is? And then to, on top of that, Jesus is trotting on past them. He's getting on out of those waves. And then all of a sudden, they start screaming out, and they call out to him. You know, I look at it, and I see Jesus has a frivolous side to his nature. And you'll start seeing him. He may look like a ghost to you. He may look far away. But as you pull him in, as you get to know him, you're going to see sides to Jesus that you never dreamed possible. And if you're presumptuous Peter, you may think that you can do what he does. In John 14, 12, backs it up. You will do the same things that Jesus did. And even greater things. I think Jesus just opened the door to the frivolous water. I think he just invited us all out of the boat. I think he just said there's better ways. Oh, indulgence. I don't really think there's a way to even talk about indulgence or frivolousness unless you talk about children. That's really where the idea, the concept comes from. You know, there's that frivolous nature in humans. There is something about you that wants to spoil that kid when it is so cute and it looks just like you. there's just something about it you know if you don't think it's in parents it's definitely in grandparents they don't have to have boundaries they don't care if they spoil that kid it's just it's by nature there's something within it do you think that possibly that that nature is within God and he's having to suppress it I want y'all, let's look at a couple of verses and let's see if we think that's true. You know, maybe that it has to be contained because the reason you don't do it sometimes is it ruins the kid. Makes a little monster out of them. You know, should we ever show our undying love and affection to y'all? Then that's the day you quit all ministries and you quit helping us and you're too good. To, you know, I'm just like, oh, why? So you're just like, you got to hold back a little bit because, you know, it's funny what... Um, if it's my Bible study on the ultimate test of a man, it's not how much tragedy you can take in life, but how much goodness and still be faithful to God. Can you handle indulgence? Is it possible? You know, Genesis 37, 2 through 4 was Joseph. And he was the favorite kid. If any of you have been blessed to be the favorite kid, I know I was, but, you know, if you've been blessed to be the favorite kid, now my brother would say the same thing. The favorite son, you know, he got the coat of many colors. You know, have your parents ever given you something that the rest of them didn't get? You know, you could just see him putting that coat on and thinking about how many maids that took to make that coat for him. Indulgence. You see that with children. You know, if you were doing another Bible study, we were being hard on you tonight. We do Hebrews 12 where whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. We we talk about that side, but not tonight. We're going to look at Malachi 3.17. Because there's something to God that I think is in his heart even deeper than this other side. Until you act up. 
Okay, Malachi 3, 17, last book in the Old Testament. It says, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And on that day I will prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man who spares his own son who serves him. Did you know that the Lord called attention to the fact that men spare their sons? It's a principle. You can't get around it. You know, it's true. God loves you when he corrects you. But the truth is, there's something in him that wants to indulge you. It wants to spare you. It's us keeping him from doing it. The sparing side. Number one, I want you to look where it says they are a possession. The word is actually jewels. Note down Isaiah 62.3. Literally, it's my peculiar treasure. Exodus 19.5, Deuteronomy 7.6, 14.2, Psalm 135.4. All this is denoting the fact that it says that you're like the best possession in the house. It's like when the house is burning, you grab your money bag and you jump out. <laughs> or you grab your baby and jump out. <laughs> it's your most precious possession. You're not going to let that house go down without that. Be it your money, be it your baby, it's all about the same. You know, you're going to get that possession. <laughs> you're going to get out with it. Some of you marked your Bible so well, you wouldn't let that Bible. I mean, you've, you've got some precious possessions. Number two, notice it didn't say the son who loves him. It says the son who serves him. You know, part of what God does is train us. So discipline is training. God's not going to have his children trained up in idleness. It says the son who serves him. I like that concept. I think you can be totally indulged if you totally serve. You put those two ideas together. If you are serving God and you like, God, I'm a servant to you. He goes, no, you're a kid to me. You're my child. I mean, it's an exchange there. And then even God's children stand in need of sparing mercy. There's times in life, even a good kid, you need your dad to spare you. (laughs) You need him to cut you a little extra slack. You know, if you're the football coach's son, you get a little extra slack cut to you. Not my family. It was harder on you. But, you know, it's it's a theory. It's a theory that we're looking at. The, the, The sparing nature that you have of your own kids. The sparing side of God. You know, Jesus uses the same theory in taxation. And when you all get to where April the 15th is a cuss word to you all like it is to us, you know, right now you just get your little check. But later they'll be taking the money out all year long. And that's a... October the 15th. Okay, yeah, he's choking over there. But you will understand and appreciate this verse in Matthew 17. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax, the IRS, approached. That's a horrible thought. Peter, and they said, don't your master pay taxes? You know, it sounds just like them. And he says, yes, of course we do. (laughs) And he says, when he came into the house before he had time to speak, Jesus asking. Notice that. Jesus kind of knew what had happened. He said, what is your opinion, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take tolls or take taxes? And Peter goes like a good Jew. From foreigners. <laughs> and when he said from foreigners, Jesus said to him, the sons are exempt from taxes. I can't wait till Jesus sets up his kingdom. Amen. <laughs> I mean, what a taxation system. He doesn't let the sons pay the taxes. The foreigners pay it. I mean, this is so interesting here. Can you imagine a kingdom set up where the foreigners paid the bills? 
That's how good government's supposed to react. You could write a paper on this. This is good government. Yeah, it's godly. Oh, it's so the other way around. Yeah, Jews think so clean. I have to love the, they think just like, <laughs> it's just such a clean way of looking at But you're seeing the sparing side of God right here. Old Testament, New Testament coming all the way through. All right, the indulgence in the prodigal son. The whole parable is about indulgence, if you think about it. It's a lesson in indulgence. First of all, I don't know how the guy got away with getting his inheritance early. I mean, first of all, that's interesting. Everybody always debates that one. But the prodigal went back because he compared his living standard to the fact that the hired men were indulged. Your daddy treats the employees so well that it's so rough on me out here in the world, I'd rather go back and be one of dad's employees. They're better off than what I'm at. Then the next thing is, the prodigal was totally indulged. Put a ring on his finger, put a robe on him, kill the fatted calf, we're going to have a party tonight. The lost guy is found. And Jesus says, what's it like when the lost person gets saved? All of heaven rejoices. The angels throw a party. We need to be lighting a candle because Ty won someone to the Lord. You know, it's, it's an indulgence. It's an, an excitement. You see that in there, that the prodigal is indulged as a son. And he was bad boy. Repent and got indulged. It doesn't work if you don't repent, but he repented and he was indulged. And he said, you know, I don't even deserve to be a hard man. And he goes, here's the ring. Then the elder son, the indulgement is the strongest in this one. His answer to him when he was jealous and when he was saying, Dad, what's going on? He didn't rebuke the guy the way you'd think he'd be rebuked. He just said, everything I have is yours. Just join me in this party. You should be excited too. Do you think that the heart of God is that concept? Everything I have is yours. Instead of thinking God's holding back from you, is there a possibility everything he has is yours and he's trying to hand it off? But he can't find anybody capable or responsible or having the capacity? I'm looking at this and I'm seeing something here because in the natural that I see a lot of people getting second generation wealth and they don't make it. They get an inheritance and they blow it. They can't handle it. It ruins them. They get divorced. They break up. You know, we think a lot of money is the answer. It doesn't prove it. Something God wants to hand to you, but you can't hold on to it. I think that God is looking for someone to hand it over to. I think that's the nature of sons and inheritances. I think that's why he uses those analogies in Scripture. I think that when the parable of the talent happened, and the one guy lost his talent because he hid it so he wasn't using it, so God was giving it to someone that was using it, he doesn't give it to the middleman to even it out. He gives it to the guy who's doing the most. Because I think that's the concept that the guy was capable of adding one more to him without collapsing. I see that here, that God gave him his initial investment. He did well, and he throws another one to him at a later point in his life. Did you know if you're faithful now, God will throw more to you later in your life? You'll find yourself having new talents and abilities and resources you never had to start with. And you'll be shocked. You'll think, I used to not be gifted to do what I'm doing right now. And you'll find new anointings and new giftings coming on you at various times in your life. And talents being thrown to you. Frivolous. Beyond desperate. You know, there's nothing wrong with getting a miracle from God when you're in trouble. But y'all, this is not what this is about. This is beyond desperate. Not a miracle for a person because they're in trouble. But it's something totally different. Beyond desperate. Almost above being desperate. Luke 17 is that parable of the ten lepers come to Jesus, and he actually told them, when you get healed, as you go on your way, you're going to get healed, go to the priest. 
But one of them didn't go to the priest. He went back to Jesus. You know, when Jimmy Lau prayed for y'all, I thought it was real funny. Meerkats went and found him where he was eating and thanked him. And I said, Meerkats, you're the first one. Out. You know, it's just interesting seeing that outpouring of thank you for what you did. You know, that coming up, that desperate. The leper made whole. Remember he said to him, you've been healed and then made whole? You know, we talked about that. Y'all who've seen leprosy, do you see up there where they don't have their fingers? Where their legs have rotted so bad that their uh, skin turns like hard sheets and it peels off and the pus and it rots off? When those guys were healed, the leprosy stopped. Like we didn't take pictures of the ones that don't have the nose. The leprosy so much in their eyes that the leprosy is eating the eyeballs out. Jesus healed them. It stopped the pus. It stopped the oozing. It stopped the, the disease. But the guy came back and he was made whole. Totally different concept. You know, we don't ever think that Jesus ever did a leg growing back on. Here is a possibility. I've never found it until I saw this last night at the state school. I never realized that this is the scripture that might indicate something of that nature. That the difference between healing, because having seen lepers, something's missing. <laughs> That's a sign of leprosy, if y'all heard the little song. <laughs> no, we won't. Okay, we won't do the little song. Okay, but did you see that where you're seeing beyond? Did you know that gratitude is what gets you beyond healing? into the land of the miraculous. Gratitude will solve most of the things that ill you. Most of the things causing you frustration and problems in your day. Beyond cleansing, beyond healing, beyond wholeness. That's where that twisted, diseased, defected heart of yours becomes whole again, is in the land of gratitude. You know, there's one among you that if I could personify this person, I would say he's full of gratitude. I remember we took him to go get coffee with us in Austin. And the whole time on the trip, he was going, man, I've never had so much fun on this trip. I've never had so much fun. And the whole time, he was just pouring out gratitude for us and just going, thank you for taking me. Thank you for taking me. And I mean, I'm like, oh, my gosh, we've got Korea ahead of us. We've got Vietnam. We've got foreign fields. And I mean, the gratitude was so overwhelming. If I could say the strongest virtue I've ever seen, on Leslie, is his ability to verbalize gratitude, sincere gratitude. And, y'all, I think if I could name, man, I like it when you're known by a certain virtue, that I can put a virtue on your life and say, that represents him to me. It's cleansing. It's beyond cleansing. It's healing. It fixed some things inside of me that day. And beyond healing, it makes you whole in your mind. It gives you more concise thoughts. You know what? The audacity of miracles Honestly, I think Elijah caught hold of this a little bit, and some of you are wild enough and crazy enough you're going to do this. I know you are going to get us in trouble. We try to reckon ourselves to that, but you are going to do it. But you've got that thing on you like Elijah. It's the audacity of a miracle. And you caught hold of this thing. that Elijah kind of got caught up in this, that he could do a miracle by challenging the priest of Baal, by challenging the pagan society, by being... Numbered one against 450 priests of Baal, not even counting the other set of priests that they didn't name. That he says, okay, we're going to put God over here. We're going to call fire down from heaven. And he knows that in that moment, Elijah goes, time for a miracle. 
The setting is, we're going to see, and he goes, decide you this day whom you're going to serve. And he not only performs a miracle, but he took the miracle and made it better. He got caught up in a realm that I think few people understand. Fire falling from heaven is shocking. But then he goes, let's throw water on the firewood. Let's let God burn up soaked wood. During a drought, let's take four barrels of water and soak the furnace place. And then he's laughing his head off going, you're God asleep? Is he on vacation? You know, he, he does that number. He provokes them. The demons get all stirred up. They start doing the first sessions of cutting. That's <laughs> where it began. <laughs> Elijah was tormenting them. But I see here, if you really talk about audacity, I'm saying this was audacity, that he took a miracle and that he made it better. He was like, let's make it harder. Let's make God have to show off a little more. <laughs> It's just crazy here how he does these things. Wow. This is a new way to do apologetics. It's a much bolder approach. And I know some of you are going there, so I've just <laughs> left that one in your hands. Oh, but when you catch this thing, it's contagious. You're contagious. It makes you want to live this way with gratitude, with boldness, with audacity. That you look in Luke 5, 4 through 9. And you know, we're so selfish that when we get a miracle, we want to keep it all to ourselves. And I think God has to do this, open up the crowd and let all the cows out, because literally, if he didn't, we would hoard it. No kidding. They fished all night long, and they caught nothing. Right, we remember this story. We've gone over it. Let's do something a little bit different with it. Jesus could have let them catch a fish, one fish. That would have been fine. Fished all night, caught nothing. He says, throw your line on the other side. And he caught a fish. And out of 50 nothing catches, y'all remember the shock of Kyle praying, Lord, let me catch a shrimp for Angie. And he throws the net in. (laughs) A shrimp was in the net. (laughs) I was impressed. He used his authority. I was like, oh, God, these kids. (laughs) I just didn't know what to say. Then John's sitting there texting and reeling. You know, I have Dobernecki out there in the water looking for me. I want a little stingray or flounder to bring back. And, you know, here's Dobernecki. He's looking, but John's casting. And he reels in a flounder about this big and thinks it'll fit in the in the fish tank. <laughs> you know, they're the fishes that God messed up on, and they're, you know, their eyes are... <laughs> no, sorry, Lord, I didn't mean that. Okay, so anyway, and we see here they could have caught one. <laughs> They could have caught one here, but how about if they caught five? But no, 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 a net full. No, 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 not a net full. It tore their nets. It was so full. It busted the nets out. No, 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 not torn nets. Boat sinking amounts of fish. I mean, literally, they were pulling the fish so far in that their boat starts sinking. But you know what? When you're out there drowning in winds and waves, it scares you, but not when you're loaded with fish. That would be like, man, 30 deer in the back of my truck. Who cares if the tires are popping out? I mean, you don't care when you got that many fish. But honestly, it's the lavishness of God that makes you share. Because I guarantee you, Jewish <laughs> young fishermen, sailor, are not going to share one fish with you until their boat starts sinking and they got to have your help. And they go, 10 fish, 10 fish. <laughs> Do you think this is a principle in our life that God has been so good to me, I have to share it with you? 
it's so pressed down, shaken together, poured in my lap that's running over that I've got to give to you. Not because I love you. Because I'll sink if I don't. <laughs> I don't have the capacity for this kind of lifestyle. I can't hold it in. That's what the concept is. You've got to be blessed in order to be a... What a genius way of God to get us out of our selfishness. You know, if you're extremely selfish, it's not a baby, it's triplets. You know, he has ways of <laughs> giving you blessings. <laughs> look at Zach. You look scared there. <laughs> the boat breaking. Okay, we see that. Okay, look in Luke 7, verse 36. The lavish side. You look at the Christmas story and you've got the three kings. And they brought lavish gifts to Jesus. You got the shepherds. And boy, God put on fireworks display. I mean, he had an angelic choir. They'll even be known for their choir for what the angels did that day. I mean, they were bursting singing. They made First Baptist on TV Dallas look small. And they were all up in the sky and they were singing. You look at the wise men, they bring gifts, the lavish side of God. Luke seven thirty six. the lady who lavished him with perfume. Was the perfume truly worth a year's salary? This isn't lavish. This is ridiculous. But I hate to agree, you know, you don't want to be saying that because Jesus got in trouble for saying, I don't think this is smart. Breaking a bottle of costly perfume like this, it could have been so we could have given it to the poor. Forget the fact I get a percentage. <laughs> you see this, the lavish side, and you don't see Jesus stopping her. Think of what that would have cost in today's salary. If it was a year's salary then, what it would have cost today. In modern homes, we have more frivolous things than they do. Think of their homes. We've seen them over there. They might have a picture but not a frame. You remember? Remember those places we went? Uh, no closet. Maybe a few dishes, tools, no entertainment, very few changes of clothing, and then this, a bottle of perfume worth more than you'd make in a lifetime. You can't imagine when, when mama's telling you, put one little drop on, the woman goes and breaks the bottle and pours it over him. It stands out as she lavished the perfume on him, and the aroma fills the room, fills the greedy people, fills the people that are Scrooge and stingy, and they carry that aroma, and they said he was anointed for burial. And then they said, he who's been forgiven much, loveth much. You get into lavishness when you understand this principle going back and forth. Gold on the streets of heaven. There's a lavishness. There's a sense of this in the divine heart of God. Ephesians 1.8 uses this word in your Bible. It says that he lavishes us with wisdom and understanding to make known to us the mysteries. Mysteries are to be made known. Of his will to his good pleasure. You see Ephesians 2.10 Y'all, you need to write these down. I ask y'all where these verses are, and y'all don't know. And I'm giving them to you. Okay, Ephesians 2.10. That he does exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or think or even dare to hope or believe. Or, you know, the assessment, the commentary. What was Jesus' life like? John 7.31. No one could do this any more than he. No one could have done the miracles if we had the whole world of books, of library. It would be filled to tell you what he did in those three wow. years. Oh, it must have been something. <laughs> It's like me on a mission team. I have no way of keeping track with all the miracles that happen in a day's time. You have experiences I never have that I never even get a chance to hear about. There's so much. That's why there's four different viewpoints of one miracle. You can understand it once you've been on the field because so much action's going on. No one could have done more than him. You know, some of you, the biggest thing, you can't think about God because you're so worried about a companion. 
And you think of Genesis 1, I think of Sunday school classes, that a companion was God's idea. It originated with God. The whole idea, freely to be enjoyed. There's so many good things about it. God originated marriage. It wasn't Adam saying, I'm lonely. It was God looking down and saying, Adam, you need a wife. I don't think God has lost his matchmaking capabilities. Some of you, this is your biggest hope. This is where you're starved the most of sin, the lavishness here. And I would say, God is able to cause two people to meet. He did a great job here. He hasn't lost that ability. Get hope. Your Eve is up on the way. It's all those other ones you've got around you. She can't find her way up to you. Okay. So, (laughs) yeah, finally he laughs. Okay, so good it can't be improved. Better than. Think about God's ability to create, invent. It can't be improved upon. Who can improve on the invention of an elephant? I mean, really, what would you do to improve an elephant? (laughs) Then he's no longer an elephant. If I said, what could you improve a draft? Richard says, make his neck shorter, and then he wouldn't be a draft. He'd be a dog. (laughs) Donkey. (laughs) How could you improve a horse? (laughs) You haven't ridden my horse. My horse was so fast, the rider couldn't stay on it. (laughs) Who could improve a strawberry? Who could improve Ramaton? (laughs) Who could improve Think of this one This one's really hard Who could improve the color red Who could improve the color blue Who could improve the color yellow Y'all it's shocking when you think about God It's so much fun Y'all one place that lavishness is so strong Is in the bottom of the ocean Now when they take you on these dives Y'all I know they've got glass And they've framed you in And they've dumped tropical fish down with you Because have you seen the men that catch fish? They're ugly. They're gray and they're ugly. But when you're diving, it looks like this. It's covered with beautiful schools of fish of all colors that change and turn and move at the exact same moment. Octopuses that are bigger than your whole body and they're coming towards you with their little tentacles. You've got these sea turtles where I'm swimming behind them at 80 feet down. The stingrays who come and give you little strawberries all over your skin as they kiss you while they kill other Famous risk-taking people, but they kiss you. You look at this and you see the difference. And tonight, before Bible study, look at somebody has given me a Gobi dragon. And it's, now you don't think of Gobi dragons as pretty. I mean, the most beautiful Gobi dragon in the world. I mean, you look at it, it's lavish. Marine tanks are already a step beyond anything you can imagine. Just thinking, God had that for an imagination? Look at Jock, the shrimp. (laughs) look at dora (laughs) you know look at these different creatures and you starfish that are so big and blue in the philippines we sell them like frisbees and i thought for sure it wasn't real i'm looking at that who can improve you know john 16 23 through 24 he says verily verily i tell you the truth he pledges his word to you and he does it on the foundation of his bare word of truth to you he says to you ask anything in my name In order, we're going to stop for a minute. Ask anything in my name. You know, people have tried to put parameters around it, limitations. They try to put qualifications. I mean, watch what commentaries do with this verse. It makes them nervous. There's verses in the Bible that make commentaries nervous. 
This is one of them. <laughs> and the shocking thing about this is, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, ask anything in my name for one reason, that your joy might be made full. When I got a revelation that God was committed to my joy, do you understand lavishness in that sense? When you've had a back-breaking week, and he says, come to me, my yoke is easy. You know, there's something about a new car, it makes you forget all your troubles. (laughs) Something about, it's something about the lavishness of the Lord that you forget in my presence is fullness of joy. I'm seeing here answered prayer, full of confidence in prayer. How committed is he to you? That he would give you a blank check of a scripture here and said, I'm committed to your joy. For no other reason. Not so you can serve me better. Not so you can love me more. He just said, I'm committed to your joy. He came up with that idea of joy beyond happiness. I mean, people, they do a lot with the word happiness. Boy, there's a word stronger in the Bible than happiness, and it's joy. We're looking for happiness. When we find joy, it's beyond that. You know, this one verse is so indulgent, so personal in Scripture, so hard to find, it's almost impossible to find words to describe it. It astounds me. It messes with my mind. It brings me to a deeper place with God. I watch people, and somehow they get... I don't know how to say this, but it seems like their discipline takes things away from them. But when the Lord revealed himself to me on this, it was shocking to me that it was the indulgence of God that brought my heart back to him. That when he revealed to me that he was giving me more and more and more and more and more, and he showed me a vision As I saw it, I couldn't believe God as I was watching him do this to my life and sinned and sinned. And when I saw that, I broke in a million pieces because I could not understand the kindness or the goodness to God and why he did that. It makes no sense to me. I felt like he should have punished me. And instead, I felt like he was committed to me at a level I couldn't understand. And when I understood he was committed to blessing me, it broke me. There's a realm with God of indulgence that you can't understand. It's beyond what your mind can take or your heart, and he'll break you at a level you never could imagine. And you talk about sellout. It was because of great joy the guy sold all that he had. Mm-hmm. People say, oh, I've got to sell everything I got to God because it's so restricting. Oh, no, no, no. No, they missed it. The sellout's at a point of joy. When I understood this blessing, I'm going to give you a parable. I'm going to end with this parable. There was once a young man who had grown up in a close and a very happy family. It was time that he was going off to college, and college was about 10 hours away, and there was not a vehicle available to him, and that was the only thing really holding him back from his college of his dream. And in his life, his father had always been a good provider for him. His dad had worked hard. When working hard, he made sacrifices. He didn't hold anything back. I mean, it was just, you know, middle-class America. He'd made the sacrifices, he'd given them a house, he'd put them through school, he'd been saving for college. The dad had things in his life he wanted, but he did without so that his family could have. It was a very responsible love. The dad was already working overtime to prepare. There was no way to do this. So what was unusual, the mom got them together and the family met secretly and decided to buy this young man a car. And the mom and dad were in agreement over this. 
Then they decided they better pull their other kids into it. And so they pulled them into it together, and they all agreed. And what was funny, it hit this family with generosity. It just exploded. They weren't going to get just this boy a vehicle. They were going to get him the car of his dreams. One of the brothers said that he would get an extra job to help make this possible. The girl chimed in, my brother's favorite color is blue. I know what he wants. I know what he's looking at. You know, they realized the coming year that they would be sharing a vehicle, giving each other rides, the family vehicle, getting up earlier so they could take each other and and come back so that one vehicle would work back home to be able to give this guy to make that sacrifice. You know, the day they went down to pick it out, they got a beauty of a car, and they could not wait to the big day. They could imagine what this was going to be like of giving rides and him going off to college. They were going to send their brother off in stop. The father stood up, and he did something that meant even more than the car. He proclaimed over him his love, and then he gave him the gift. In fact, they had a big old tarp spread over the top of the car. And they yanked that veil back off the car, and when they pulled it off, here comes out this big, bright, shining new car. And it was no mileage on it, and it had that new car smell to it. The family, you saw them, they were clapping, and they were whistling, and they were shouting, and the brothers and sisters were as excited about this gift as the father and the mother. They had done something together as a family. When he was given the card, there was little reaction in him. His attitude was one of shocking aloofness and coldness. What was most obvious was he kept his hands in his pocket, and he never looked up. He never said thanks. He never replied. I think what topped it off more than anything was that one of his brothers heard one thing come out of his mouth, something about he felt like he deserved this. That night, the family went to bed together, and they cried themselves to sleep. I'm ending with this parable on indulgence. And I'm saying that this parable illustrates what we do with the indulgence side of God. He has things to unveil for your life. He has something bright and shiny and new. And the only just reward of this is a heart full of thanksgiving and living a pleasing life to him. I was walking out praying, and I saw that family scene in front of my eyes. And that's what the Lord says that we look like as his children when we don't understand what indulgence is all about. How do we react to indulgence? Do we reciprocate to God by giving God our indulgence sort of life? Do we throw our arms around his neck and repeatedly kiss him? Do we say, oh, I'm not worthy to even be like that, and you fall to the ground like that woman and begin to take your hair and and wipe his feet while Simon says, oh my gosh, what are you doing? This is embarrassing. This is emotionalism. And Jesus says, Simon, you offered me no kiss. You offered me no water. You offered me nothing for my feet. Where are the other nine? Jesus is too much of a man to require it of us or to expect it of us or to even tell us that he wants it. But in looking at these parables, I'm seeing that very thing in you that likes to be appreciated, that would have cried yourself to sleep at the moment, is what God goes through all the time when we're missing that missing ingredients of thanksgiving, of a nation who has forgotten to thank their God. 
forgotten where our abundance came from. Where we're going to spread a Thanksgiving table and forget him over football and over turkey. For God has blessed us day in and day out. We will destroy the meaning of what we've been given if we don't celebrate him, his goodness, and his indulgence with us. Amen.